This is The Coffee Break, a podcast on the state of the networking business where we discuss vendors, moves, news, analysis on products and positioning, and generally take a close look at the underside and the soft, dark, kind of smelly, full of uh, belly button fluff business of networking in the time it takes to have a coffee break, we think. So I'm Greg Farrow, and with me today is Andrew Conry-Murray. How are you, Andrew? I'm good, Greg. How are you? Uh, it's been a long couple of weeks. We've actually had some action. We skipped a week last week because nothing was happening, and then... Boom. Boom. Everything and, was happening. Uh, excited to welcome Amy Arnold to help us sort it all out. Uh, you may know Amy from the Twitters as uh, at Amy Engineer. Uh, she's a networking professional and an all-around clever person, so we thought she'd uh, be a good fit for the show. Hi, Amy. Hello. Hello, hello. I'm glad to be on the show. So, Greg, what do we have on tap? Oh, yeah, we've got a veritable smorgasbord, but I think we'll start off with our favorite G word. There was a survey this week where Gartner says that 70% of CIOs <laughs> will change their technology and sourcing relationships in the next two to three years. They've done some sort of uh, survey, and they've given us a tantalizing tease of what the report might actually say and then securely locked it up behind secret paywalls. So we don't know too much about what it actually means, except to say that 70% of CIOs will change their technology and sourcing relationships in the next two to three years for a variety of reasons. Yeah, that uh, summary that is accessible to everyone was a remarkable collection of buzzwords and grand useless generalizations. It was. Um, but Were either of you able to parse any meaning from it? You know, I was impressed with the number of buzzwords that they could actually fit into one piece. It was it was pretty <laughs> impressive. <laughs> so yes, we will be changing our vendor relationships. Uh, you can guess why, but we're not going to tell you. I'm going to show you how when it's going to happen either. Yeah, I guess uh, I sort of looked at it and thought um, what we're seeing here is that customers perceive a transition as happening and are reevaluating their existing relationships. Now, whether it's cloud or whether it's like I'm spending too much on this vendor, I'm going to change from this vendor to this vendor, it doesn't really matter. What it means is customers are expecting to make change more generally, and I think that's exciting. But aren't customers always looking to make change? I, I, that's what I didn't understand about. Do you think it's that we're more willing to make change now than we were previously. I, I mean, I always thought businesses were constantly looking for ways to to change relationships if if it would benefit the business. Yeah, I don't think so. I think we've seen companies stick with known vendors for a long period of time. The dominance of Microsoft for over 15 years, Cisco dominating the networking marketplace for over a decade, Oracle dominating the the database space for such a long you know all of these big companies that have these incumbent positions have all been largely static and unchanging for many many years and that's what customers wanted is this a sign that customers are now saying actually i don't want the same thing as i've had for the last decade i need something new and i'm turning away from those suppliers um uh, i think the way i read it was um they, they did mention a couple of things one that infrastructure as a service and business processes as a service are growing which to me, I, I guess I sort of read as, um, you know, you service providers may not be able to get away with charging as much for managed services as you used to. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I've seen a number of contracts, outsourcing contracts, been dispelled, you know, like literally just dissolved because they're not working. And there's also a big trend like IBM struggling to keep its outsourcing projects going. And I know that some of the contracts that went to India are being wound up and brought back. There's always something in the news here in the UK about, you know, so-and-so's contract is bringing it back on shore. 
So mm-hmm. maybe that's a trend? I do think that while we are constantly evaluating, I think you might be right, Greg, in that we're actually willing to make a change. I think we're always evaluating whether or not we are going to make a change, but maybe now we're willing to actually go ahead and say, yeah, yeah, we're going to jump off that and go and and try something different given the change of technology so quickly. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, with the rise of software as a service and infrastructure as a service, uh, people have more options. Um, And so maybe the message to service providers is, uh, evolve or die. <laughs> well, I've been at the I've been at the whim of my outsourcing contracts, which say thou shalt do this and this and this, and if you wish anything else, then that's an extra. You know, it's a bit like, you know, if you here you go, here's your sandwich. Do you want butter on it? Oh, that's five cents extra. You know? <laughs> jam, jam. Well, we'll have to get in a design expert and a consulting team to advise you on which jam, Mister Customer. Uh, so you know, I actually I, I take your meaning, but I was sort of also confused because they were saying they kept using the word industrialization that you know service providers need to provide better scale but they also talked about at the same time service providers needing to provide more hands-on customized service and those seem like two different things to me so I don't really know what they're after (laughs) you can have your car in black red or green (laughs) or midnight gray yes but that's extra (laughs) <laughs> midnight gray which is also yeah. black but we just call it midnight gray yeah, well i mean now that i look at it i notice that the, all the ads on the side of this is for outsourcing so maybe they're talking about outsourcing things i mean outsourcing is ripe for change for sure because it's mm-hmm. very much a static business change prevention well returning to our discussions we've had over the last couple of weeks drew we've been talking about net neutrality and how the american telecommunications industry seems to um not quite have worked out what self-interest is and long-term customer benefit and uh, managed to, <laughs> to trade them off uh, with the Netflix Long-term talk- customer benefit. I don't know if that's a yeah. phrase that they've ever encountered. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, you know, this net neutrality thing is good for customers and good for their long-term business, but, you know, companies like Comcast go, long-term? There's only this quarter, son. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I love uh, Amy... Uh, also sent us a link about uh, was it AT and T promising not to raise prices if we ignore net neutrality and I think the term you used was they pinky swore to do so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They said they told the FCC if you throw away net neutrality, we we swear we pinky swear that we're not going to charge our customers as much money. We'll charge them less. You know, don't ask us how much less or give you know hold us to any standards or anything like that. But I'm sure that it'll cost them less. And I just I can't even process that argument. <laughs> Uh, and greg you had referenced uh, a post from netflix uh you know putting its stake in the ground on why net neutrality is is necessary yeah and they were basically pointing out the reality of you know they paid comcast basically bribe money they didn't quite call it that in the blog post but they go awfully close i mean ultimately this gets back to the point what we were talking about is that if if comcast Netflix has always had to pay to connect to Comcast's network and Level right. 3 and, you know, whoever else it is, right? Yeah. And they have to pay for the bit mile. That is for the – if you're going to run a 10-gig pipe from wherever Netflix is to wherever Comcast is, you pay for that 10-gig pipe, right? Yeah. But what you then don't do is you don't pay above the cost of that circuit, right? So if that circuit – if it costs, 
I don't know, $200,000 to trench a fiber optic cable between two buildings and then for each company to put switches on the end, etc., then you pay that money and you share the cost between you because both of you are getting something out of it. Comcast gets the opportunity to make revenue from the retail customers and Netflix makes money by giving Comcast traffic to put on its network and everybody's happy. But Comcast is now saying, oh, no, 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 we've got the customers you should pay to access our customers. So they actually want to say, you know, I want to charge customers to rent the line, but I want to charge the suppliers to put the traffic into the network, which is double dipping and technically illegal, by the way. Yes. And and it should be. I mean, customers are paying. um, They can't charge the edge providers for the same service or they shouldn't be able to. AT&T is arguing that if they are able to negotiate these special rates, that startups will actually have more of a chance to get into the business, which I read that and I just don't see how that logic, I mean, do you guys see that that logic holds any any kind of weight? They, they are saying that if they are able to, that startups can negotiate special rates for their, and, and be more successful. Um, well, in a bureaucracy, in a bureaucracy, the telecommunication provider always wins. So if you're a, <laughs> <laughs> let me be, you know, if you're AT and T and Comcast, you can easily afford to spend fifty million, you know, putting together a bureaucratic team to negotiate contracts. But if you're a startup, adding one person just to negotiate that is a complete time waste and inefficiency. That would, yep. be, that would be like getting in your car and before you get on the road, the first thing you have to do is spend 15 minutes negotiating your path through the network and then buying a ticket for every piece of the road that you're going to get on. Yes. Yeah, I, it, it seems like a ridiculous argument. I mean, I think one idea that popped into my mind as I was looking through the comments on the Netflix piece, um, you know, these – Cable providers have, you know, they say we're selling you a, you know, 10 megabits per second or 50 megabits per second under the assumption that you're probably never actually going to hit that kind of throughput. But suddenly a service like Netflix comes along and you're starting to get up there and and the cable providers have actually oversubscribed their capacity. And so suddenly they actually can't deliver the service they've really promised. Yeah, there's this great quote in the article that said, hey, if we don't charge edge providers, then we'll actually have to pay the billions ourselves to upgrade our network. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that kind of your job? Uh, Isn't that kind of what you paid them for to rent a service? One of the things I should point out is somebody who lives offshore in Europe is that actually we don't have these problems. It's only America that has this problem today mostly. There are a few other countries who have similar problems, but it's mostly just America and it's mostly the Americans who are getting all excited about it. So, you know, we should try and keep it in terms of the global telecommunications market. Mostly it's an American thing. USA. USA. <laughs> yeah. Land of the free to be gouged at any opportunity for a bit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, so, Drew, you put this article. I wrote an article this week about uh, Mitakura, who is a uh, SDN company, and they released a part- announced a partnership with Cumulus Networks. Maybe you should wrap up what I wrote in that blog post. Well, essentially, it was the idea that uh, Mutacore and Cumulus, through this partnership, are uh, really making a good stab at you know uh, bringing together the the virtual overlay and the physical network and providing some solid connections there, which is you know kind of an issue uh, for those folks selling just just the virtual overlay. Hmm. Um, I I called that out because I thought I, I'm I'm just cumulus uh as a as a startup seems to be going gangbusters in terms of the the partnerships it's racking up with some decent companies uh, I, I just thought it was interesting to call out and wanted to get your feedback on that 
So Cumulus is, seems to be getting an enormously good um, run at this for some reason. I'm a little bit baffled as to just why a startup of um, limited size and, you know, why is it getting such a great run at all of this thing? You know, they did a partnership with Dell. They've done a partnership now with Medicura. They've got a bunch of others in the that they've sort of done as They've got partnerships with the white box vendors who are making the switches themselves, mm-hmm. and they seem to have a very uh, a thing going on with VMware where they're a certified partner of VMware as well, so that NSX can talk to Cumulus as an operating system in the switch. And very soon, um, we might see something a bit more concrete coming out of that. Well, if you're a startup and all of these big companies are running around to court you and to take you to the dance, that's a hell of a run. And... Um, and now the fact that Cumulus is partnering not just with the big companies, but also with the little companies. So Medicure makes an SDN solution that's been very successful over time. Um, it's it's just, it's a bit of both, right? That, that, that The first thing that shocks me is how is Cumulus getting so far so fast? Yeah, I'm surprised. Amy, do you have a comment you want to weigh in on? Well, I don't, I'm not sure, obviously, but um, <laughs> well, I mean, um, but I do think that the the interest in this whole concept of the white box switching is is probably definitely a driving factor, and Linux is, you know, which is basically what it's based on, is is welcomed by so many sysadmins and network engineers, and and it's something that we're familiar with, and I wonder if that helps give it some sort of traction um, in this in this market. I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, my take is that um, I think. Where we're seeing SDN first emerge in in any substantial form is on the service provider side. Um, And so the Cumulus model is obviously uh, of more interest on that end because it's a lot cheaper to buy the white box and Cumulus than it is to buy your typical legacy vendors switching hardware. Mm. Um, So there's sort of the, you know, the the, the camel's nose under the tent. Um, And again, Mitakura also, uh, when I talked to them, they said, you know, right now most of their business is coming from service providers, but they're also going after an enterprise play. But I think that's what, what Cumulus is doing. And also when we talked, uh, I talked to Cumulus and Dell about their partnership and Dell saw Cumulus, the partnership as an opportunity for Dell to now suddenly um, maybe have an appeal toward the service provider market that it hasn't had before. Um, so I think that's where Cumulus is getting this traction because it's um, it's finding its nose, it's finding its way in through the service provider side and then hmm. we'll see a migration toward white box in the enterprise. I don't know. There was a couple of articles this week in the UK. One of the um, internet exchange points up in the middle of the country, which means it's not a huge one, but it's you know it's an internet exchange point, has recently thrown out their brocade hardware and replaced it with Cumulus and I did see that, yeah, white box. And um, so you're so ultimately the announcement from Medicure is they're going to cooperate with Cumulus to orchestrate VTEP so that yeah. you can now get hardware defined networking. That is, this physical port maps to that physical port. But in between, it maps into a software overlay, which is what I call hardware-defined networking, for lack of better. That's really important to understand that Medicure is really solving that problem. Now, if you're an internet exchange point, you actually don't want that so much because the terminating physical points to a physical point, you're already doing that with BGP and routing protocols anyway. But it does allow you to do some interesting stuff for service providers who want to be sort of small telcos. 
and they want to create customer connections from this point to this point. Today, they have to use MPLS-enabled switches and all the cost of MPLS, that is, you know, cost-enabled hardware and all the routing protocols and the complexity of having people around to configure MPLS. And then the more MPLS you have, the more exponentially complicated it becomes to maintain, right? So Mm -hmm. MPLS is not linearly simplistic to keep going. It's actually exponentially more complex as you get larger and larger MPLS. And uh, the second point about MPLS is that every route in the MPLS table requires TCAMs in the hardware to keep it going. And once you get beyond a certain size, you need bigger and bigger devices. So you need the big routers from the big companies, you know, the Alkaloos, the Ericssons and so forth, to meet those MPLS table sizes with a couple of million entries in them. Whereas if you're doing overlays, well, you actually don't. You can actually get by with fractional cost, almost white box. So if if Cumulus can keep this up and then get good partnerships with companies like Medicura to, you know, and other service provider plays, then there's a chance that they can really disrupt the service provider market. So yeah, that makes sense, I guess. <laughs> that was a really long way of saying you agree. <laughs> well, I'm sort of working through it in my head. I hadn't thought through the when I saw the Medicure announcement, I originally thought of it as an enterprise thing because, you know, mapping physical ports to physical ports gives you firewall to firewall or IDS units or, you know, this is my legacy server running Windows yes. 2000. Yes. You know, <laughs> and I don't want to virtualize it because I'm frightened of virtualizing Windows 2000 or something, you know. So it is that. But yeah, yes. in the service provider network, it could give you, there's a lot of smaller service providers who could just use this to bypass using MPLS or enabling an MPLS core. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Good times. Good times in networking. <laughs> so um, speaking of odd things, uh, the final uh, topic for this week is the Cisco InterCloud. Um, Drew, why don't you kick off the InterCloud discussion? Have you done much into that area? Uh, I haven't, but I, I read the announcement, so it sounds like, and again, it was a little frustratingly vague, but it sounds like Cisco is saying uh, they're going to set up infrastructure to give their customers an opportunity to do hybrid cloud, private cloud, and public cloud services. Uh, they didn't specifically talk about whether they're going to do infrastructure as a service, but that, that, that seems like a logical way to go. Uh, but essentially, it's Cisco saying we're getting into the cloud business. Yeah, but not just any cloud. It's a cloud of clouds. So, like, if you saw the picture, there was a mega cloud involved as well, which I didn't even know was a thing. But <laughs> there was a mega cloud. So I, for one, welcome our new inter-cloud overlords. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, he was talking about in the articles that they are actually going to enable connections between all these different clouds using APIs. So I was kind of interested to get Greg's thoughts on that. Hmm. Well... So here's my take on it, right? They've gone to a bunch of um, uh, small companies around the world. Like Telstra in Australia is a big deal, but they're not big. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, people who have got data centers or managed services divisions or people who've got some sort of proto-cloud, you know, they want to be a cloud provider or something. And I think what Cisco's saying is, we're going to get you all together and I'm going to get you to all buy the same type of hardware and use the same type of software. And we're going to give you a version of OpenStack so that everybody's running on the same operating system. And then we're going to nominally call you the Cisco InterCloud. Now, Mm -hmm. off you go and sell that to everybody. (laughs) 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 So it's really, to me, it's like a... 
it's sort of like service providers who've got data centers and they're saying, here's a template for how to build a cloud. We're going to give you all the instructions. Now, all you've got to do is give us a purchase order and then we'll sell you all the UCS that you need and all of the storage that you need and all of the OpenStack will give you our open and the support and all that sort of stuff. So you can build a cloud to stop people. And then I imagine the business win here for companies. Now, this is all purely scuttlebutt because as you say, that's maddeningly vague, but the first thing to realize is that Cisco's not building a cloud, all right? Nowhere here is Cisco buying a data center, building a data center. They're partnering with other people. Mm-hmm. Do we, is that fair, Andrew? Um, I, I guess so, yeah. I'll, I'll accept that. Yeah. And so Cisco Cloud Services is going to be powered by this, this, and this. So it's going to take all of Cisco's Videoscape Cloud. It's got a HANA, SAP HANA. A unit inside of Cisco that does in-memory SAP databases, if you're into that. Obviously, OpenStack can do PaaS and EAS. Um, Cisco's got WebEx, which is collaboration, and you can do hosted. If you're a service provider, you can host your own version of WebEx and do a rebranding of it. Mm-hmm. There's a voice division that does um, hosted telephony services, and they want you to go and be part of that. Of course, Cisco's VDI division has a whole VDI solution. So I'm sure if I was a mid-sized cloud provider, I could go to Cisco and say, I want to be an inter-cloud provider. And Cisco will say, here's a document. You know, you've got this vision of like a, you know, 600 pages of <laughs> how to build one inter-cloud by Acme Packet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> page one. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, Cisco wants you to connect them all together so that if I was buying from, you know, Greg Farrow Cloud in the UK, I could connect to Amy Engineers Cloud in downtown, is it Texas you live? Texas, yes. Yeah. But, you know, I could also connect to Amy, Con- Andrew, to Drew's Cloud in wherever it is you live, whatever. Outside Philly. Outside <laughs> Philly, right? And all of our clouds would be functionally the same. They'd all be running Cisco UCS. They'd all be using Cisco Prime or UCS Director. They'd all be running a same version of OpenStack. So I could move my VMs from here to you and have a yes. billing agreement between you. So does that make sense? It does make sense because I, I guess what I was trying to parse from the announcement was, I mean, it makes sense that Cisco would want to go to these people and say, buy our gear, cloud in a box, now you can offer services, mm-hmm. um, go for it. But they yep. also did talk about hybrid cloud uh, and they threw uh, API in there. Yeah, um, but they've got that already. They've got the Nexus 1000V, which already does intercloud. They're using, they were using the word intercloud to describe part of the Nexus 1000V product about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I was just I'm wondering, you know, if part of what they're thinking on the enterprise side is, you know, they see VMware also building out a hybrid cloud service and they're worried about VMware's control of the workload and so they want to have a competitive offering for their enterprise customers who are looking at, you know, hybrid clouds for bursting or whatever you'd use a hybrid cloud for. But but it's 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 it it's a Cisco powered program, right? So you're not buying it from Cisco, you're buying it from the partners. Right. Right. So it's not actually a Cisco cloud. Cisco mm-hmm. isn't building anything. I think the only thing that the only reason Cisco says they're investing one billion dollars, now this is complete guesswork, is because they're gonna subsidize the purchase of the hardware. <laughs> and and they're not actually spending a billion dollars, they're just foregoing some revenue to get started in the early you know what I mean? I, I think I accept your reading of these entrails. <laughs> I mean, it might work. It might work, but um, it doesn't. I, think, I mean, it seems like a very sensible plan. I, you know, I, I don't see why it wouldn't. 
Well, it's good for Cisco because it maintains their revenue. They get to, like, EMC's been doing this for the last three years. They've got a whole bunch of um, cloud storage clouds out there. And what they've been doing is giving people free VMAXs to build cloud storage companies. And uh, they are on five-year delay, you know, multi-year delayed investment plans where they, you get a VMAX, which is of, you know, earth size, really large, but you only pay for what you're using. Uh Well, that's just a delayed sale, right? So normally in the enterprise, you go and spend your 10 million or your 20 million on a, you know, 500 terabyte VMAX storage array. Well, if if EMC is going to give you a 500 terabyte storage array and then only charge you per terabyte that you use, well, then EMC's foregone some revenue. They've invested money in building a cloud, right? right. And this is what Cisco's doing here or something similar. Um, but it's still flogging their products to their existing partners who already participate in the Cisco-powered program using Cisco products and Cisco services. <laughs> yes, yes. I- yeah. I did notice that they did mention that ACI was going to be included in this this cloud, in this inter-cloud. So it would be an interesting use case there. ACI actually doesn't matter much in terms of this because really the value here is in the OpenStack. Like the, this is really about, you know, where SDN fits into the thing. So it's about OpenStack being the orchestration platform. It's about the Cisco Cloud Web Security Engine doing scanning and email stuff. It's about using WebEx or hosted IP telephony or using UCS Director to do automated service delivery. So if you want to spin up an instance, UCS Director goes and spins it up. UCS Director will go and talk to ACI to actually configure the network. But that's kind of like, who cares at this point? Do you know what I'm... (laughs) (laughs) If you're you're buying a hosted collaboration service, which is a call manager, like a hosted call manager, do you really care that it's using ACI as a customer? No, absolutely not. If you're buying a virtual desktop as a service, do you, you know, if I'm running a cloud, I do want ACI because ACI has a promise. I've seen some stuff which suggests that um, the Epic controller can actually monitor flows and report response times of a given flow. So if... Epic can actually monitor your voice call flows as they go across the controller in the ACI chipset in the Nexus 9000. Um, then you've got the ability to actually provide very closely monitored service levels, which is quite very, very difficult to do today. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm sure the cus- yeah the consumer at the end is not going to be looking that far under the, under the covers to see what it is. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I guess I feel like they – I still am holding on to a little bit to this hybrid cloud idea of whether or not Cisco's building its own. It's, it'll have partners. But I think maybe they threw ACI and APIC in there to say if you – as a sort of hedge to, to customers to say if you buy ACI, we'll be able to plug you into these delicious cloud services. <laughs> delicious cloud. <laughs> <laughs> well, Okay, I guess I see it a bit differently because I was recently doing some work with a customer on who's using a full-on FlexPod deployment, and we're using Cisco Prime NSC, which is the DFA offering, which is the tool that actually configures the DFA. Uh Now, as a networking guy, reading up on NSC and looking at the deployment of an NSC controller on Cisco's dynamic fabric automation is really cool. It was actually trivial. It was like 2% of the effort. The rest of the time was spent in UCS Director configuring ESX to do system deployments or to try and get Cisco Security Manager to do the virtual firewall management or to get the Nexus 1000 V API to actually work properly with UCS Director 
you know, those types of things. That was the hardest part. The actual part of doing the network orchestration was hard, but it wasn't important in terms of the overall scope of the solution. Sure. No, I'm not trying to emphasize hmm. the, the role for uh, ACI um, as being important. I just maybe if I'm, from Cisco's perspective, I, I maybe I'm thinking that they're telling enterprise customers there's a little bit of investment protection here that this is linchpin to, to get you some other things. Okay, well, let me throw one more thing in. Is of course, I don't know if you were tracking, Google had an announcement this week. They did a conference yesterday where they had talked about the Google Cloud Compute Platform, or no, Google Compute Platform, where they fundamentally announced an ES service. And they undercut the pricing of an ES hosting instance from for, for, compared to AWS by 40%. Oof. Wow. Yeah. Serious. <laughs> yeah. So it's now down to $40 a month for a mid, mid-sized instance, basically, on Google as... Um, whereas Amazon was charging $100 a month. So all of a sudden, these types of clouds that Cisco's putting together needs to be really competitive. You know, they've got to be cheap to be able to compete against Google and Amazon. Well, I was thinking about that, and I obviously Cisco doesn't do cheap, uh, so they're going to come at it from a, a different perspective of more of a, you know, boutique workload, um, you know, critical applications as opposed to, you know, some kind of skunk works that you're going to throw up on a cheap infrastructure as a service platform. <laughs> I wouldn't call Google's platform cheap. <laughs> <laughs> they're calling it cheap. They're, you know, if they're charging you 40 bucks a month. Well, yeah. Do you think that they're taking a loss on any of that over time? Because they they're big enough to sustain a loss and undercut their pricing for a while. Yes. Get rid of some competition. No, they produced some numbers in a report I saw from GigaOM yesterday basically pointing out that hardware costs have been dropping by 20% per year for the last five years, but cloud pricing has only been reducing at 6%. So they're just going to make it even to where – so the hardware prices have dropped 60% in the last five years, so they're just going to drop their pricing the same. And uh, even more interestingly, if you actually run those instances at full full power, they'll actually increase your discounts the more you run. Automatically, you don't have to go and negotiate with the person. They just, you know, use an algorithm to dynamically give you cheaper and cheaper the more you compute. The harder you run them, the more discount you'll get. No questions asked. And, and I mean, $40 per instance is really, really cheap for an ES instance. And um, there's not a lot of money... Like if you figure at 40 bucks an instance, let's say you're running a VMware stack and you're running 20 to 1, right? So if you say 40 bucks a month at 20 to 1, that means it's $8,000 a server that revenue you're going to generate. So in a year, that's $96,000 out of that service. So, you know, 8 times 12 is $96,000. That's really quite, that's really on the bare mini, right? If you figure that just buying one of those servers costs you about 20 grand for the CapEx, it's going to cost you 2000 a year to put power into that sort of thing. If you look at maintenance costs, servicing costs, cabling costs, networking costs, all the software that you need to administer it, each one of those, like, you know, simple things like having a Linux system on top of that's $1,000 a year. Having an operator, if you've got one operator per 100 servers, well, that's 2000 per physical server of costs. You know, 100000 a year per server, that's not very, that's pretty cheap. It's that delicious cloud again. 
<laughs> it's a trademark term. I just want to make sure that's clear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just to put it into perspective is, you know, you when you start doing the numbers and you say $40 a month, that sounds cheap. Well, what if I've got 20 VMs on a single server? You know, well, that sets the price for a private cloud. And um, that's, you know, not a lot of money. It's actually, it doesn't, it sounds like a lot, $100,000 per server, but it's actually not. Um, right. Once you actually add up, if you've got, how many orchestration systems do you have maintaining that server? How many patches? How much security scanning? How much compliance? How much, you know, all that sort of stuff actually adds up fairly quickly. Well, I think, I think that's just about it. Andrew, what do you think? Uh, I think we're done here, yes. Yeah, stick a fork in it. Actually, <laughs> yeah, oh, there's a joke in Australia. When you put the sausages in the barbie, you stick a fork in it, and then the, the juice runs out, and then you can tell if it's done. So if you're ready, if you say, is it done? You say, yeah, stick a fork in it and call it done. We have so, that joke here too. Do you? We do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Texas knows a thing or two about barbecue. Just a few, yeah. Just a few. We'll tell you how it's done. Well, Amy, thank you for joining us this week. Tell people where they can find you on the internet. Thanks. I am at Amy Engineer on Twitter, and I blog at Network Computing and at AmyEngineer.com. Drew, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Uh, I am at informationweek.com. Uh, I will be live at Interop next week, uh, and I apologize for the plug, but um, if you're interested in post-apocalyptic fiction, I just published a novel called Wasteland Blues. You can find it on Amazon. Yeah, which I read at the weekend, and it was awesome. <laughs> it really was. I couldn't put the bloody thing down. I wasted hours. <laughs> which is, uh, I'm which, contributing to your... <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I can highly recommend it. So do go to Amazon and buy that book. Uh, I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on my blog at etherealmind.com and I also write at Network Computing. I also will be at Interrupt next week. So if you are there, you can find me on Twitter and flag me down and come and have a chat to me. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, uh, this has been the coffee break. It's a work in progress while we continue to work out what we're doing and where we've been talking. You can find out more about the show on packetpushes.net. Follow the Packet Pushes on Twitter to find out the latest that's happening there because we have a whole bunch of people writing really good networking information there. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you not next week because Interop is on and it'll be a couple of weeks after that before we return. But we look forward to seeing you then. Thanks. Really need to script that outro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>